everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I've recorded a few of my Instagram lives from the past week, and I've mashed them all together, so hopefully you guys enjoy it. We're going to talk about protein recommendations, creatine supplementation, how fast you should gain weight, and a host of other nuanced topics. So without further ado, let's get into it. Q&A here. Let's start out, though, by talking about dietary protein, uh, just because this has been a recurring question over and over and over again, and there's actually been some new guidelines put out. So just uh, to review, in most countries in the world right now, the dietary protein intake uh, recommendations um, are 0.8 to 1 gram per kilogram body weight. It's just uh, almost, almost all all qu- uh, countries that actually make a recommendation on this. That's kind of uh, where they go now. <clears throat> as far as protein intake for uh, the maximum adaptations you can get from strength training or resistance training, induced hypertrophy, or even endurance training, like just actual performance outcomes, um, aesthetic outcomes, uh, or even like health outcomes like weight loss, we actually have really good data that uh, protein intake should be different than that above the RDA, the 0.8 gram per kilogram body weight per day uh, sort of recommendation. So the the latest sort of evidence-based recommendations for dietary protein intake um, really seem to be in that 1.4 to 1.7 gram per kilogram uh, body weight. That's just for resistance training adaptations, also for hypertrophy uh, and endurance athletes. That's kind of like the general guideline uh, uh, right now. And actually, that's new data that was recently just published in the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. Um, This was just published, uh, I believe, this past, uh, uh, yeah, so March of this year, 2019. And so, yeah, they they put out some guidelines for actual just uh, uh, nutrition uh, in athletics and uh, this protein recommendation, that's where it comes from. So it's, yeah, again, 1.4 to 1.7 grams per kilogram per day of protein total. And that per meal, it should be 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilo of protein. Um, is if you're going to do protein by itself or not with any like big uh, 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 addition of dietary fat, if you're going to take it with something that slows down the protein uh, digestion and, and absorption, like dietary fat or high doses of fiber, then they recommend increasing it to 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilo per meal. But again, per day, it's 1.3 to 1.7 grams per kilo. Now, the evidence suggests that if you're losing weight um, or if you're very lean and you're like dieting for a bodybuilding show, uh, things of that nature, that actually higher uh, doses of protein would be recommended, um, even up to, you know, like 2.5, up to 3. 0.1 grams per kilo if you look at uh, Helm's old study. But um, so really that's kind of uh, that really upper end threshold. So in fact, the recommendations by these new guidelines uh, actually suggest that if you're losing weight, if you're very lean um, or engaging in very heavy resistance training, you know, 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilo. And again, my kind of take on this is that if your weight maintenance um, or if you're gaining body weight, then the protein intake should be 1.4 to 1.7 grams per kilo. And if, if you're losing weight, if you're very lean, or if you're engaging in really, really hard training, then uh, you could bump that up to two to three grams per kilo. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about protein intake, this all assumes that you're, you know, eating a relatively high quality protein diet. What I mean by that is that most of these are either derived from uh, animal sources or high quality vegan sources uh, like soy protein, uh, like pea protein, uh, things of that nature. So um, in any event, uh, this is not taking 
what I would consider to be third world proteins or substandard proteins like collagen protein is not a good protein source um, when it comes to anabolism. It's deficient in most of the essential amino acids, particularly the BCAAs. The bioavailability is not very good and it's very expensive. So that's like three strikes and it's a no for me dog. Uh, also like the keto proteins, the bone broth proteins, anything that's not whey or a high quality vegan uh, protein, I don't think that I would recommend offhand. Uh, people will say casein, and I don't think the evidence is suggestive that casein improves outcomes compared to a whey protein taken at the same time. So for instance, if you want to take casein before bed, I don't necessarily think that's a, you know, advantageous compared to taking whey protein. Um, and as far as like from a satiety or appetite suppression thing, whey and casein do about the same, if not even a tip of the cap to whey. So I think whey is probably the best bet for most folks, unless you're vegan, which, or you can't tolerate whey or for whatever reason, then a high quality vegan protein would be advisable. And we sell both of those through Barbo Medicine, although there's other great manufacturers out there. Just look for a CGMP uh, a certification on the label. That's something you want to see. And again, if a protein company is making like collagen protein or, you know, CBD or hemp oil or, the you know, bone broth protein, any of that stuff, just move on. They're not interested in actually provide putting out good products. Just, you know, that's what it is. All right. So we started this out with a bunch of stuff on protein. Let's go to some of your questions. Creatine monohydrate is the preferred type of creatine supplement to use in order to boost intramuscular uh, levels of <clears throat> creatine kinase. Um, that is an enzyme that helps break down creatine phosphate. So you can get that phosphate molecule to ADP, adenosine diphosphate. It basically creates a bunch of extra intracellular energy also works by uh, signaling satellite cells to um, come to the muscle so that you increase the number of myonuclei. That's uh, kind of uh, one way in which creatine works. Basically, the more myonuclei each muscle fiber has, the more muscle protein that you can generate per muscle protein synthesis event. So that's a good way to increase recovery, increase performance, increase uh, strength. Um, and then the other third way, the mechanism of action of creatine, so besides energy increasing, uh, increases in energy and increases in um, myonuclei number, the third way uh, that creatine works is an osmolite. Basically, it attracts water, increases uh, muscular hydration, um, which is a, um, uh, an anabolic stimulus in and of itself. So three ways in which creatine works. Creatine monohydrate is the preferred uh, creatine supplement if you're going to use it. Um, Creatine HCL is the only other one that I would even potentially recommend. However, it's not absorbed any better because creatine monohydrate has 100% absorption and it's much, much, much more expensive. So I don't recommend creatine HCL unless somebody has uh, some sort of strange side effect where or they cannot tolerate creatine monohydrate otherwise and it's really important for them to take it for whatever reason. Um, that being said, uh, about a third of all sort of side effects of creatine, most common one being or one of the common ones being this gastrointestinal distress thing, uh, happens uh, in about a third of people getting a placebo that they think it's uh, creatine. So I actually did a YouTube video on this, so I'll link that in the description if you're watching or listening to this in the future. Uh, <laughs> if you're watching this live, you can head over to our YouTube channel and check out our the video I did on creatine a little over a year ago. It's pretty relevant. So TLDR on creatine, um, I would prefer creatine monohydrate as a supplement uh, if we we're going to use uh, formed a uh, pick of certain type to supplement. I would it, the way it works is that it increases intramuscular energy, <clears throat> increases cellular energy. Uh, you know, more generally, 
It also increases satellite cell signaling to increase number of myonuclei in the muscle fiber. That's that's beneficial. And then third way is an osmolite, which increases, uh, which is an anabolic stimulus in and of itself. Uh, has no effect on the kidneys or the liver. Um, I also wrote a paper on creatine and its effects on kidney, uh, just sort of parameters that you can measure in a, a blood test. And it is it does not affect the kidneys in any way, shape, or form. So supplemental creatine does not do that. Um, it does cyclize to creatinine, um, particularly if you're using monohydrate in the acute setting. So, you know, the first week or two of uh, creatine supplementation can um, cyclize to creatinine um, a little bit, but it doesn't typically do that with long-term administration, whereas cre crealkaline or other uh, less uh, uh, – Absorbed versions of creatine do cyclize to creatinine, and that can give you a spurious lab result, uh, but still has no actual effect on the kidney. It's just a lab result. So in any event, I wrote a paper on that called uh, Acute Creatine Supplementation – or uh, Creatine Supplementation Mimicking Acute uh, Kidney uh, Injury, and uh, you guys can look that up. If you're listening to this in the future, I will link that in the description below as well. So we talked about protein. We talked about creatine. Now let's answer some of the questions here on Instagram Live. Uh, I just got done training. Well, I got one more training session for my, my meet this weekend. So we'll scroll up to the top, see what you guys got here. <clears throat> right. Scroll in. All right. Gingerbeard Man 83. How would you feel about repacking one of the mile rep bench variants with the machine instead of the suggested dumbbells? Oh, replacing, not repacking. Uh, that's fine. I, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I think as long as the range of motion is rel is preserved, um, then that would be fine. You know, from a hypertrophy standpoint, really what you're looking for is uh, range of motion. So you, act, you use a lot of muscle groups um, and you're looking for motor unit recruitment. So you either have to lift light weights to near failure or heavy weights to near failure and then volume. So, you know, less fatiguing variations may be useful um, for in order to get that volume in. <clears throat> All right, next question. When in a calorie deficit, would you say your goal is to maximize bouts of muscle protein synthesis to help offset muscle protein breakdown? Um, I don't think that I would frame it that way. It's not wrong. It's just not the way I think about it. When you're in a calorie deficit, the idea is to lose weight. You're going to lose some lean body mass anyway unless you're relatively new to this or have really, really favorable genetics. Um, but it's unlikely that you're going to be able to lose weight without losing some lean body mass. Usually in the literature, it's like a 75-25 sort of split, 75% um, body fat, 25% lean body mass, which is all non-fat mass. So, you, you know, there's water, there's visceral organ tissue in there, there's stored glycogen, all sorts of stuff. Uh, I think as long as you're engaging in some sort of resistance training um, and, and eating adequate protein um, – you're unlikely to get any more beneficial, like any more focus on muscle protein synthesis events outside of that is unlikely to help. So, you know, the worst thing you could do is stop training, eat a low protein diet, and then also be in a calorie deficit That would be, and be sick. That would be the worst. Um, that being said, the only kind of modification I would make based on being in a calorie deficit would be increasing dietary protein. Um, so right now, the as we talked about, uh, last time, and then also if you're listening to this, we I put that little clip at the beginning. Um, with 
dietary protein, the recommendations are uh, about 1.6 uh, uh, grams per kilogram body weight. I think the range that the new uh, Sports uh, Society of Nutrition um, recommends is like 1.4 to 1.6 grams per kilo uh, based on uh, – if you're, as long as you're main, uh, uh, either maintaining weight or gaining weight. <clears throat> if you're losing weight, they increase that. Uh, up to even two and a half grams per kilogram body weight. Uh, and then there's some research from Helms um, suggesting that if you're very lean and if you're engaged in a bunch of training and you're losing weight, that even up to 3.1 grams per kilo body weight. So what I would recommend from a protein um, intake is if you're gaining weight or you're maintaining weight, for most folks, somewhere in that 1.4 to 1.7 grams per kilo, that's a fine, just pick a number and go with it. Um, based on your preferences. And then if you're losing weight, I tend to bump it up to two to three grams per kilogram body weight. The leaner you are, go up the, uh, uh, and that's kind of how I would do it. All right. What are your thoughts on people who claim that eating chicken increases your resistance to antibiotics? Uh, that it actually doesn't, you know, we have safety data on chicken ingestion that shows that actually doesn't happen in humans. Um, there's, oh man, two papers come to mind off the top of my head where they actually looked at this exact question. So basically people who ate chicken and the incidence of bacterial infections compared to people who did not consume chicken, um, <laughs> there's no difference. So yeah, it's just a citation desperately needed sort of deal. And just, you know, I, I, I you know, kind of am sad for these people who think that we're this fragile, like we are not fragile, you know, unless you are, in which case that's a sad deal. So that's why I'm sad for them. Let's see. Mustache appears closer to nose. Intentional? Um, I don't know. I think it's the angle, you know, the iPhone uh, with this lens. I don't want it to go into my nose is the deal. But, uh, you know, I also don't want like the thin thing where it looks like, uh, um, you know, uh, a lawyer, a crooked lawyer from the early 90s. <clears throat> Jim Lounge, 32. Oh, a creatine question. I want to take creatine and I've watched all your videos on it. However, I'm prone to male pattern baldness and do not want to take anything that might accelerate the process. Does creatine accelerate male pattern baldness? Uh, so the best of, to the best of our knowledge, no, it does not. There's a paper on rugby players suggesting that <clears throat> creatine increases DHT levels. And in some papers and some uh, uh, Context elevated DHT levels can uh, increase male pattern baldness, uh, the rapidity of that process. That being said, DHT levels fluctuate and the receptor sensitivity and density, especially at the level of the hair follicle, also fluctuates. So we don't think that acute changes in DHT levels really, really uh, matter that much. Um, and we have no evidence suggesting that creatine alters male, you know, any sort of hair loss a pattern at all. Uh, yeah. So I wouldn't, um, worry about it. And the other thing is, you know, I think if you're really, really worried about male pattern baldness and you haven't already talked to your doctor about, uh, using a hair preservation agent, um, like finasteride or dutasteride or something like that, then I, I think this whole conversation is kind of silly. So basically you're telling me you're very worried about this thing. Um, you know, and creatine, that's, that's the boogeyman. It, it's really, again, cause we don't have evidence for, for that. Um, and the mechanism is more, much, much more complex than just, oh, DHT goes up and that causes male pattern baldness. That's not 
that's not how this works because again, the at, at every level of that hormones elevation or, or change, you get uh, additional changes in the receptor density and sensitivity and stuff like that. So um, rather, we do know that being on one of those agents, finasteride, dutasteride can help preserve uh, hair. Um, and so I think that would be reasonable to discuss with your doctor. Let's see. Ted asks, how much pounds of muscle mass can a newbie gain in a year if they're six foot five, six foot six and have good genes, in your opinion, good sir? Um, I don't actually know. Yeah, I don't know. Because good genes, that, does, that doesn't tell me enough. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, given your height and what somebody weighs right now. So if this is like a specific question to you. I, I don't know that I can answer that. That being said, we do get asked all the time, like, what is a good sort of rate of weight gain? Like, what is, you know, something that I, how, that I could expect? Uh, what is a reasonable uh, sort of goal to shoot for? And so an interesting study by Basine et al. This is 1996, which is, uh, yeah, now almost, uh, almost, wait, is that 2006? Oh, dude, it's over 20 years. Jeez, time flies. All right, so in any event, this is kind of like a an older study, but uh, it's really interesting. So they took like 45 um, individual males between the ages of 19 and 40, and they split up into four groups. Group one uh, got testosterone replacement therapy basically at a high dose. So the normal, one of the, you know, a very normal testosterone replacement therapy dose is like 200 milligrams per week of a testosterone cypionate or enanthate, which is just long acting testosterone. Um, usually you inject weekly uh, when you're doing TRT. In any event, they got three times that much, 600 milligrams. It's a big dose, high dose anabolic steroids, basically. Uh, and they got to resistance train too. And the resistance training protocol, they were squatting, they were benching, they were pressing, they did something else. And it was like pretty high intensity, 70%, 80%, and even some work at 90%, four sets of six uh, on most of the lifts. So, you know, they were resistance training and none of them had, were trained before. So in any event, group one, 600 milligrams, plus they got to lift weights. Second group, they just got testosterone, 600 milligrams per week. Again, three times the normal TRT, TRT dose and didn't get to resistance train. So basically just on steroids, but not lifting. The third group, uh, got a placebo and got to resistance train. And then the fourth group were the controls. They got the placebo and did not resistance train. I studied these for 10, these individuals for 10 weeks. They also had advised them to eat a high protein diet. So again, they're setting these people up for like the best success they, they can have. Like, uh, you know, they're saying, Hey, you get to, uh, you're not, you, ha you don't lift weights right now. We're going to make you lift weights. You don't need a high protein diet. We're going to make you eat a high protein diet, or at least advise you to do so. And, oh, by the way, we're going to give you a bunch of testosterone, you know, which at super physiological doses can certainly be a help. Uh, in any event, in 10 weeks, the people on testosterone replacement therapy who were new to lifting weights, who are now lifting weights and who are eating a high protein diet gained six kilos of muscle in 10 weeks on drugs, never trained before, or had not, you know, weren't considered trained and then eating a high protein diet. Those who were resistance training, who did not, who were on the placebo, but not testosterone replacement therapy, uh, a little bit less than half of that. I think it was like two and a half or 2.6 kilos in 10 weeks. Okay. So, um, if you were, you know, trying to kind of, uh, bracket, like how much weight can you reasonably gain or should you be looking to gain, um, you know, in a month and you know that, People who didn't train before got, you know, three times the, the TRT dose of testosterone and were advised to eat a high protein diet, put on six kilos in 10 weeks. You know, if you stretch that out and you call that three months, you say two kilos a month, that's like, you know, a little bit higher than I think that most people could gain in lean body mass if they were untrained. 
Um, you know, so that being said, you know, it's, it wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility for a freak responder or somebody who does really well, um, is very untrained and has the potential to put on a lot of muscle mass to gain that much per month. So in any event, long story short, I usually tell people one to two kilos per month is should be the rate of weight gain that you're shooting for. Anything more than that is highly likely to increase your body fat substantially without increasing your lean body mass anymore. And uh, that's just what the evidence says. That's not an isolated study. It's just one of my favorite ones that sticks in my head because it's just so cool how they how they did that. Um, and the advice to gain weight faster than that seems like a bad idea considering the obesity epidemic, op- epidemic and considering how fast people's waist circumferences tend to increase. And that in and of itself is a risk, particularly uh, when people's waist circumferences, like men in particular in the United States and Canada and, and European countries, when their waist circumference gets greater than 37 inches, which can happen very readily one, if you're gaining weight uh, rapidly. So anyway, I went on a tangent on that one. <laughs> See if we get some more questions. Daddy Longlifts, how would you change someone's training if someone has a physical labor job, such as moving, construction, roofing, et cetera? I wouldn't. Yeah. So basically, whatever you've done, you like, so if you've been a mover, excuse me, if you've worked construction or roofing for a long enough period of time, it's not stressful to you anymore from a like physical novelty standpoint or recovery standpoint, um, outside of making sure that you can actually eat and you're not you know, dehydrated or whatever. Uh, and so I wouldn't actually change training is if you've been doing it for a while. If you just start like a roofing job or something, you've never trained and you've never done that before and you're, you know, training. I, I also don't think that I would modify that except for having some sort of auto regulation in your training anyway, which I would have had to begin with. So in summary, I wouldn't actually change your training prophylactically because you told me that you had a hard labor job. I just, you know, I would expect you to do fine and uh, I'm not worried about your recovery. Uh, you don't need complete recovery to see performance improvements and uh, recovery is happening 24-7 even when um, you have a hard labor job. So moving along. Which one piece of cardio equipment would you recommend for a home gym? It'd be hard to beat an assault bike or air bike, something like that. Uh, a rower is nice too, but I think that the air bike and assault bikes are a little cheaper and I think they're a little more accessible to folks rather than the rower, which seem to, you know, put people off a little bit more. I mean, just as far as how, how I see these things being used. Uh, if you need to spend even less money than that, then a prowler would work. But I, I think if I had to pick one, it would be the air bike. It just, you can do everything on it. You can do low intensity, steady state stuff on it. You can do high intensity interval training on it. It's, uh, you know, it can really, really provide a good stimulus there. So there you go. Can you give a shout out to your undergrad alma mater, Truman State? Hey, shout out to Truman State. Go Bulldogs. Yeah, so what you guys don't know. So I, was, I started out Harding University, and then I <clears throat> transferred to Truman State, got my biology degree from there. I was a cheerleader there. Go dogs! Yeah, people were like, oh, you're a cheerleader. I'm like, yeah, it was cool. Uh, we didn't have to practice that much. I got some money for it, and uh, it was a good experience. And um, yeah, after that, uh, ended up moving back to St. Louis, where I'm from, and then uh, went and got my master's in anatomy and physiology from St. Louis University School of Medicine. And then went to medical school in Virginia before doing residency in UCLA. So there's my academic history. There you go. <clears throat> hey, Jordan, how would one go about programming for a supertotal? <clears throat> uh, yeah, so the, uh, I, I'm, I'm unlikely to be able to provide a 
complete program in this setting. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Supertotal would be powerlifting, weightlifting combined. Uh, but how it would really look, I mean, you're still going to have, you're going to have regular exposure to both types of lifts, uh, but you know, the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, and also the clean and jerk and the snatch. Um, I think that I would have you snatching twice a week, clean and jerking twice a week, some sort of variation of each of those. And then you'd probably squat, uh, twice a week. One of those would probably be a front squat. One of those would be a back squat. Then you deadlift, uh, Probably twice a week, one would be a regular deadlift. The other one would be either a, a pa- you know paused or or deficit or something, an assistance lift, or maybe even RDL. Just really depends on the person. And then bench, I'd probably have you bench three times a week, uh, and then you might push press. So I think that ends up being twelve movements. But yeah, it'd be relatively specific. Um, I don't think you can train for a super total year round. I think. Um, you know, requires kind of a lot of training to do, which is, which is fine. But if you have a casual interest in doing it, I, you can train the Olympic lifts and the power lifts together. I just think in order to actually have a productive training cycle, you actually do need a lot of resources to train. So would running the training portion of the three day hypertrophy program along with the conditioning from the endurance program be too much stress to get good results for both hypertrophy and endurance? Uh, so those are our templates. Um, I don't necessarily think it'd be too much stress. I just think that you're getting a little bit, you're asking for disparate sort of adaptations. Now, you know, because basically you're trying to improve your conditioning a lot while growing a lot of muscle tissue, which is kind of, those two things are kind of at odds. And so then if you're not gaining weight, then I'm not sure if the hypertrophy thing is actually that important. So, you know, overall, I, I don't necessarily see a problem with it. It just, it's a lot of training and I don't think that I could recommend somebody to do that right off the bat. Rather, what I think I would have somebody do is run the endurance template by itself first and then you can add some of the training elements from the hypertrophy template to that your second time through. I think that's reasonable, but it really depends on the person. So I'm not really worried about the stress uh, unless you've never done anything like that before, in which case combining those would be maybe an issue think but there's the pro both programs are auto-regulated so you, in theory you should be okay there uh but yeah the the adaptations that you're asking for are kind of at odds so i don't know that's how if that's how i would actually program it so jenna casagrande says hi hey how you doing uh creatine before or after a workout is five to ten milligrams the optimal amount so it doesn't matter when you take creatine as long as you take it on a daily basis usually takes about two weeks to wash out so if you want to stop taking creatine and you want it out of your system for whatever reason you stand you know one to two weeks is the washout period we just say two weeks because that's kind of what we have data on where it takes the longest amount of time to actually get out of your system so um but the optimal dosing for weight based dosing is 0.05 grams per kilogram body weight so if you're 100 kilograms then that's five grams per day usually i recommend people take three to five grams per day that's it um but if you wanted a weight based dosing 0.05 grams per kilogram uh per day and you just take it every day it doesn't matter when you take it doesn't matter if you take it with caffeine doesn't matter if you take it by itself just don't like snort it don't do that it's a bad idea uh, and again, if you haven't watched the YouTube video that I did on creatine from about a year and a half ago, I would do that. All right. I am 180 pounds at five foot nine, about 22% body fat. Should I try to gain weight or cut? So yeah, if you're 22% body fat and that's accurate, you know, by DEXA or something like that, then I would probably lose weight. 
I would tell you to lose body fat because I think you're carrying too much body fat. I would also look at a waist circumference here. So 5'9", 180, 22% body fat, your waist circumference is probably above 37 inches or getting close, which would make it difficult to want to recommend bulking. So if you're, that's kind of one of those limits that I put in place um, for weight gain for people who are from the United States, Canada, Europe, um, and not from like uh, a different ethnicity. So if you're, you know, if Caucasian, uh, if you're white or black, that that works. But if you're from Asia, if you have uh, Asian descent, then um, they use different uh, cutoffs for this. But in any event, so <clears throat> yeah, so if your waist circumference is close to 37 inches, it'd be really difficult to recommend you to cut your 22% body fat. If that's accurate, then I'd be difficult to recommend you to gain weight. Um, so based on kind of what you said here, probably losing weight, losing body fat is your best option. Um, yeah. All right. What is your favorite high intensity interval training workout? Uh, jumping social classes. Yeah. Or adult gymnastics. But uh, <laughs> it's been a while since I used those jokes. Uh, maybe they were never funny. But uh, I the stuff I do most often is either uh, high intensity interval sprints on the air bike or the rower or prowler. Yeah. I don't think body weight stuff for high intensity interval training is very useful for conditioning. I think that if that's all you have, then go for it. But I would really try to get something a little less fatiguing, something monostructural. So if you get running shoes, you can you can run. <clears throat> Thoughts on going to PA versus PT school? <clears throat> I'm already already an athletic trainer. Uh, so athletic tra- the athletic training background is not going to help you in either uh, outside of, you know, have showing that you can complete a program and I think that's useful and you got your degree and it's all good. Congratulations. Uh, I think there's no contest. I would recommend PA school over PT school 10 out of 10 times. Um, I, I think from a financial standpoint, from a skills-based standpoint, from a knowledge-based standpoint, that there's just no comparison. And um, I, I know a lot of great PTs and we're fortunate to have come in contact with them, but you're going to have to deal with a lot of stuff that you're going to have to unlearn and there's some of that in medicine and PA school and stuff like that. It's just less. So, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on the use of the Prowler for conditioning? What would be the best way to program it in? Could it also replace myo reps? I think the Prowler is just another tool in the toolbox for high-intensity interval stuff. You could do low-intensity steady state with it, like really long sled drags that are light. Uh, there's no best way to program it in. It just, you know. If you want to get better at pushing the prowler, push the prowler, but it's not better than a rower or an air bike or run, sprint running sprints if you can run or swimming. It's not better than any of that stuff. Um, it's really just about what you want to get better at and what stuff is very, very fatiguing for you. So so consider this. So let's say you had a person that's got a BMI of 40, right? And so they're very – they're obese and, and uh, they want to run as the part of their cardio. And it's like, you know, I don't think that's the best idea because you haven't ran in literally, you know, a long time. That's likely to produce weight, uh, fatigue out of proportion to the adaptation that you're going to get. So maybe we'll stick on the air bike and the rower if you can tolerate that. Even the prowler for, if you're going to use it for high intensity interval stuff, I think that's probably the best use of it. Um, And then again, if they wanted to do, if they really liked the prowler, that's all they had. And they wanted to do uh, sled drags, you know, an empty sled drag, just, attach a harness to themselves and go walk for for a mile or for 30 minutes. I mean, that's fine too, as long as, you know, they're kosher with doing that. I would not use it to replace mile reps. Mile reps are uh, strength and hypertrophy 
exercise. That's a way to program that. It's not for conditioning necessarily. So I would not use it to replace my reps. If volume is so important, why is German volume training so silly? Lack of rep variation? Uh, no. So German volume training is 10 sets of 10 reps. It's completely made up. Um, it's not like from some German weightlifting coach where it's often attributed. I think uh, Charles Poliquin, RIP, uh, made this up, and he's normally the one who gets credit for this. So multiple problems with German volume training. So one is 10 sets of 10. Uh, and I think it's at 50-something percent or lighter, 60%. Uh, 60%. I actually think it's at 50%. Um, so a couple, couple problems. One, it represents a very large increase in volume for nearly everybody. And the problem with that is, yes, volume is important, but it's also important to be able to actually tolerate the training that you're doing. In fact, the most hypertrophy, the biggest uh, improvement in hypertrophy you get is after the initial sort of alarm phase. Um, so, you know, you're talking about if somebody has never trained before, they don't grow a lot the first two or three weeks. Rather, it's the next few weeks after that when they're already kind of built up their tolerance to the training and can actually, instead of using all the recovery resources to like just function, now they get to actually thrive a little bit. So the problem, that big, you know, problem number one is this huge increase in volume. Second problem is the intensity that it's done at. So again, I think it's at 50%, which is not enough to actually stimulate motor unit recruitment until you're very, very fatigued at the end, provided you're not taking long rest periods. So if you're taking long rest periods, you may never get a lot of uh, motor unit recruitment. So 10RM is a little bit above, a 10 rep max, that's what that stands for, is a little bit above 70%. So if you're using 50%, then you're never going to get all that motor unit recruitment unless you're doing these sets on very short rest periods. And at that point, then you're like, all right, well, maybe it's a decent hypertrophy stimulus. Maybe if I did a bunch of volume training before this, I can actually tolerate this stuff. But then it's like, why? Uh, uh, then it's like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not getting any stronger, really, unless I want to get better at doing lights. If, if I want to get better at doing sets of 10, um, like light sets of 10, like more strength endurance, I, you know, which may be your jam. So all for all of those reasons and the fact that it doesn't it's not like a very short workout like it doesn't just take 20 minutes to do and uh you know it's just not good like we have other options so anyway do you ever personally implement fatigue stops to regulate your sets or do you adjust weights and hit the specific sets you've given yourself i don't know if i understand that question i don't program for myself so that's thing one. Mike Tushir has been doing my programming since 2013, except for the CrossFit experiment. Um, so I, if you're asking me, are there ever fatigue stops where I'm not supposed to go above a certain fatigue level compared to just doing the volume, the answer is yes. So yeah, I don't really know how to answer the rest of the questions. I'm unsure just based on how the phrasing, but yeah. Doctor, is it a good idea to switch from a 5x5 program to a 3x5 one, increasing the weights? Um, yeah, so if you want to increase the intensity and decrease the volume, that's a way to do it. I don't know of any good 5x5 or 3x5 programs. That is programs that are built around just those rep ranges that I would recommend. So I don't think that I would recommend doing what you're about to do. If you were looking for a program that's designed to get you stronger better conditioned, um, and grow you more muscle, improve muscular cross-sectional area, get you more muscular hypertrophy, and you haven't run the bridge yet, I would do that. 
And then we have a ton of templates that are available, but I wouldn't do five by uh, the five by five program or a three by five LP program. I wouldn't do either of those. So Drew says, what's up, homie? I'm pumped to see you hitting big numbers again. Hey, me too. Training was not so good for a minute. So all right. I also want to thank you guys because I've been able to rehab rehab my hip, back, and knee. Thanks to all the content you guys have put out. Hey, that's awesome, man. Thank you. Is slow onset cauda equina a thing? Sure. You have like a growing space occupying lesion. Sure. That would be a thing. What objective measurements could someone use when calculating acute on chronic workload ratios for basketball players? Sure. Session RPE of the practice and the amount of time that you use gives you the arbitrary units and then you, the AU, and then you calculate, uh, compare that to the previous four weeks of practice. So you, so let's back up. So again, like we do this in our training templates and this is from literature actually on team sports, um, some emerging evidence on uh, resistance training, but in any event, take the AU, you calculate the AU per session, which is this time, the duration in minutes of the session and how hard it was, RPE, you use session RPE. And you average all the practices for the week. Uh, so that gives you your AU, AU for the week, your average a, uh, stress for the week. And you compare that to the previous four weeks. Uh, and then that if it's above a certain level, you say, oh, that's too much. And in the literature right now for team sports, I think it's 1.2, 1.2. So if you're, you're acute on chronic workloads too high, that could predict injuries. So Jordan, are you a Dragon Ball Z fan? I am the opposite of a Dragon Ball Z fan. But hey, man, you do you. Quick question. When you load barbell uh, plates, oh, like standard barbell plates, what is the proper way to do it? Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's barbell police that are going to come like get you for not doing it this way. The way I do it is the first plate always faces in and the rest of them face out. That's the way I do it. So how should I change my diet in and around a hockey tournament if I'm used to one game per week, but the tournament has five games in three days? I wouldn't change it at all. You're just a normal human who's going to be a little more active for a given, you know, for a period of time. Um, and it's not like these are grueling, like long endurance events. So I wouldn't change your nutrition at all. And, uh, it mainly because it's not going to give you a performance edge. If anything, it's just going to hurt you by making you eat stuff or drink stuff that you're not used to eating and give you gastrointestinal problems. So I just wouldn't, that's my general rule of thumb is not changing things unless I get, we get time to actually train with it. And I only do that for people who, tr who train multiple times per day for multiple days per week, like, you know, getting ready for the CrossFit games, for instance, or ultra, you know, the endurance athletes and stuff like that. So, yep. Do BCAs have calories? Yes, they do. They produce heat when oxidized. There you go. Let's see. Is there any science to the reverse hyperextension? Oh, reverse hyper actually helping rehab disc herniations like it's advertised by Louis Simmons. There's absolutely zero data. Uh, that being said, most herniations will resolve on their own. So he can actually do the study. What you would do is you would get a bunch of people who have um, really severe disc herniations, like large, uh, great big herniated discs, and then six months later do another MRI. And a good amount of them would have uh, reabsorbed or otherwise resolved. And uh, 
uh, <laughs> it wouldn't mean anything to people in the pain science field, but he could do the study and then have this as literature. Uh, yeah, so the people who used reverse hyper would likely have, you know, a bunch of improved disc uh, discs on MRI, just like the controls would. So you, the way you have to set the study up is to not have a control, which would make the study weaker, but then you could say, oh, well, I have science. I have data there. So, Where do you set your eyes when setting up for the bench? Uh, so if the bar is like here, I'm looking in front of them and at the ceiling. Yeah. So I guess forward of the barbell, if you're looking directly up some at some point on the ceiling. Creatine supplementation in a person with hypertension, so that's high blood pressure. Any concerns? Uh, no. But if you have high blood pressure, you make sure it's adequately controlled. So that means if you have high blood pressure and you're supposed to be taking medication, you take your medications. That means if you need to lose weight to help manage your high blood pressure, then you need to be losing uh, weight, um, smoking, cessation, uh, excess alcohol use, treating your sleep apnea, all sorts of things like that. Is there anything that someone can do to increase their androgen receptor density or sensitivity? So androgen receptor is how the sex steroids like testosterone actually act on the tissues. So testosterone binds to the androgen receptor and then a bunch of stuff happens inside that cell like muscle protein synthesis, you know, uh, stuff like that. So yeah, ways that you can improve androgen receptor density is to train, uh, is to uh, – not be carry be carrying too much body fat, yeah. But the I, I guess I don't know if I'd like to think about this. Like I need to maximize my androgen receptor density. Not re you're just trying to maximize your outcomes, right? Like what if your androgen receptor density went up, but you didn't get any gain any muscle mass or get any stronger? Like it's not you wouldn't you don't we don't want that. Any protocol that makes you stronger or makes you bigger is likely improving something on the hormonal level related to anabolism, right? So I just, I wouldn't worry about it. If you're not carrying too much body fat and if you're training in a way that's pr promoting these sort of uh, improvements, I think you're, you're doing the thing, man. <sighs> For a gun and run video, would you recommend the A7 III or the GH5? Any other suggestions for the 2K price point? I think you can get the Sony a7 III um, body for under – I think it's less than the G5, GH5. Um, so so here's the deal. The a7 III has – is likely what I would pick just because I'm uh, comfortable with Sony cameras. Um, but the deal is the Panasonic GH5 does a little bit better codec, meaning uh, it's like 10 bits, which better, a little bit more rich colors to play around with. If that's important to you longer term, um, it does 4K at 60 frames per second, which is useful, but it is a micro four thirds sensor compared to the full frame sensor, the a7 III, which I think is probably better. Um, and it's better and the Sony's better in low light situations, takes better pictures and the autofocus is better. So despite the specs of the Panasonic, I would get the a7 III. Yeah, that's for under $2,000, full frame, 4K. Yeah, be hard to beat. Be hard to beat. All right.
Would you recommend multivitamins for the average person? This is a great question. I would not recommend multivitamins for anybody whose doctor has not prescribed them to take multivitamins. And by doctor, I mean medical doctor who actually went to either an allopathic MD granting school or an osteopathic DO granting school. So your chiropractor, your naturopath, your, uh, you know, physical therapist, none of those people count with respect to vitamin recommendations. I don't think the, most people should be taking a vitamin supplement at all. Um, yeah. Not because – so there's some evidence suggesting – I mean, well, certainly mega-dosing vitamins can be harmful, um, particularly uh, vitamin A, uh, vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin D, if you mega-dose that too high. Uh, all those things can be harmful if you take too much of them. Um, and then this, if the supplement's not – is contaminated, that's a problem. Um Multivitamins, we haven't really had a break, uh, uh, an outbreak of uh, contamination in them in a while. That being said, you just don't need them. Like you're just not deficient on things that you need to regularly or prophylactically replace, unless your doctor told you that you need to take a multivitamin. So if you've had uh, like gastric bypass or GI surgery or otherwise have some sort of absorption issue and you need to take dietary supplement, uh, dietary uh, like a multivitamin or iron or both or something like that in order to make sure you don't become deficient in those things, then sure. But otherwise, I would not recommend a multivitamin for anybody. Jordan, when can we expect the power building template? How many days a week is it? So there's two power building templates. Yeah, so we've got 15 new templates that are dropping. 15 new ones. I just finished editing them after we got them back from our quality control folks. So I'm going to try to get them up. I would like to get them to our web guy tonight so that he can put them up and, and make sure everything, all the download links and everything work tomorrow. That seems very optimistic. So maybe let's just hope by the end of the week. All right. And there's two power building templates. Uh, one is three day, one is four day. Yep. <clears throat> Any harms associated with magnesium supplementation for people with normal levels? Sure. Yeah. Hypermagnesemia is a thing. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend people supplementing with magnesium. It's not a good idea. Jordan, are the citation teas dropping soon? Yeah, they've been shipped to our distributors. So you check on our website. We'll post a link. If you're listening to this in the future, they may already be up. So head over to the website, check that out. All right. Howdy, Doc. Have you ever programmed an athlete for power-specific exercises, i.e. cleans, box jumps, Dynamax, ball work? Uh, yes, to all of those things. If so, do you implement RPE in a way that's different from strength work? Uh, yeah. Well, so usually I prescribe a percentage and then whatever the rest interval is, I'll give an RPE that's associated with bar speed. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Have you ever coached any special forces guys? I don't think one of my clients ended up going into the SEALs, but I don't think he was a SEAL when I coached him. So no. Just had PeriRx for the first time and had the best workout ever. What's the reason for the second dose post-workout? So, yeah, the, all the ergogenic aids in there. So that, that's a fancy way of saying all the supplements in there that are designed to make you recover better, faster, strong, get, get stronger, gain more muscle mass, etc. cetera, uh, are usually optimally dosed pre- and post-workout, except for creatine. Creatine would be the only one where you, like, could take it any time of day. It doesn't matter. But everything else seems to work best when it's split into either two doses, period, or split pre- and post-workout. So that's either from an absorption standpoint where uh, two doses works better than one for uh, a lot of those. So like betaine anhydrous, for instance, beta-alanine, uh, for instance. 
um, uh, or uh, uh, the data has been performed in a way where it's been given before and after training. And so that's why we did it like that. Have a common problem of the hips rising early out of the bottom of a low bar squat? Question mark. That's not a question. That's a statement. All right. It appears over midfoot on the bottom and it becomes more apparent with fatigue in a set, even occurs on pin squats. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to coach somebody without seeing the lift. Um, that being said, I think if you... If your stance width is appropriate, if you're, uh, then my next thing I would look at, you know, if you're too wide, that happens. Um, so if your stance width is appropriate, you know, that means it's just not excessively wide. Then uh, I would look at how far forward your knees are traveling on the way down. If you're not getting your knees far enough forward, then I would cue you to go knees forward. If that looks fine and uh, your back, the next thing I would look at is your back staying in extension. If that's not happening, I would really tell you to uh, squeeze your back tight. And if that's happening, like if you're doing all of those things and your hips are still shooting up first out of the bottom, then, uh, I would cue you to keep your knees forward out of the bottom of the squat. That being said, it's really difficult to, you know, coach a squat without seeing it, you know, what's a good way to respond to the thought process of rolling out does not fix anything, but it relieves pain enough temporarily for a lifter to get through a hard squat session. Oh, but if it relieves pain enough temporarily for a lifter to get through a hard squat session, then why not? Um, so we have data on does foam rolling reduce DOMS? Does it improve subjective ratings of pain just that people have pre and post foam rolling? The answer is no, it doesn't reliably uh, <clears throat> compared to uh, just a general dynamic warm-up. So I wouldn't like come back at this person and be like, see, uh, like, that's not the that's not the deal. Rather, I would say, well, why can't the person just go work out? Like, what is their understanding of their pain? Have you noceboed them and, you know, have you given, you know, framed this in a way where they have to foam roll prior to uh, lifting weights? That Because that's their, that's, you know, you messed up. So why do they think they need to foam roll? Who put that in their head? Because um, they certainly don't. And then why wouldn't they want to foam roll? It reduces force production, doesn't reduce pain reliably, doesn't reduce injury rates, and takes time. And they'd be better they their time would be better spent squatting, for instance. Let's see. Why is the first rep of my deadlift sets always the hardest? Uh, probably because it, it either your mental preparation for the rep is lacking. That is, you're, you know, like, I'm worried I'm not going to get this or, oh, this is going to be hard or whatever. And then you pull it and you're like, okay, cool. Like, I've got this, right? Gives you some positive feedback or it's just set up wrong the first rep and then you get feedback and then you set it up a little bit better in your second rep, your third rep, fourth rep, et cetera. Why do Asians have different body weight cutoffs? They don't have body weight cutoffs. They have weight, different waist circumference cutoffs due to the size of their skeletons. Yeah. I'm reading Stephen Guyane's book, uh, Guyane's book on neuroscience of obesity. Now I have a deterministic view of brain function and we don't have free, free will. Yeah. Well, <laughs> where do we go from here? Smoking weed, good for you? Uh, no. 
I mean, smoking anything is not good for you. Just as a general rule, smoking weed or ingesting cannabis can be neutral for you. Uh, it's unlikely to be beneficial for your health, no matter how you do it. I know some people are going to be like, oh, man, well, I thought you'd be like totally pro-weed. I'm like, I mean, not really. Especially, you know, for instance, if you have uh, anxiety or uh, – Depressive disorder, other mood disorder um, makes it worse. Usually doesn't really help with insomnia, can make it worse. There's other side effects, hyperemesis syndrome. People get psychotic sometimes. Uh, you know, that being said, it's not like it's that bad for you either. I don't know. I think it's – I view it more as neutral in most populate. Like it's fine, right? And it's certainly less destructive than other things that are legal right now, namely alcohol and tobacco. But I don't think that we give it a should give it a free pass. Like, oh, it doesn't do anything bad ever. It's just, it's just neutral. So yeah, there you go. This is a silly question. All right, well let's do it. This is a silly question. But when performing, say, six sets at RP eight for two sets, should I lower the weight for the second set if I'm not sure I can actually hit it at eight? I mean, usually not. I think. At eight sets, anything at less than at nine, I think you should be able to repeat the th the set. That being said, if you're unsure about it, you can go a little lighter. It, you know, it's fine. You don't get a badge of honor for completing it, but you know, you have to kind of temper your own expectations. Like you're like, and ask yourself, why don't I think I can hit this? Is this, you know, did it feel a little bit harder than a, than RP eight, for instance? Am I, you know, extra fatigued today? Am I, you know? Just not feeling it, if I'm, something like that. But if you have no really good reason for it, I would expect you to be able to repeat anything, any sets that are less than RP9. Thoughts on running the bridge 3.0 during a uh, while cutting weight? Yeah, I think it's fine. Is it okay to start powerlifting at the age of 27? Uh, no, only 26. Yeah, you, 26 is the max. And then after that, they powerlifting police come and get you and then. Can't do it. Uh, yeah, no, dude. You obviously can start powerlifting at age of 27. If yes, which program should I follow? I mean, I don't know. Have you not? If you've never trained at all, I think you should do our beginner template. Um, if you're already training right now, you should jump on the bridge. It's free. And uh, yeah, not don't confuse that with jumping off a bridge because <laughs> that would be. Uh, I feel like I'm gonna make dad jokes the rest of my life. Yeah, it's funny. Jordan, what do you think about Prolepin's table to structure rep ranges for strength training or hypertrophy? I think that those, those are generally not useful for people who are not doing the Olympic lifts. So, I haven't listened to it yet, but what is your opinion on Clinical Athlete's recent podcast about periodization? I do not know. I have not listened to it. I don't, I don't listen to, uh, to most of their stuff. Not because I dislike them, but I just tell, I'm being honest. <clears throat> my three by five is stuck. What should I do? Get on a better program. I don't know of any good programs that are revolve around three sets of five. What do you wish you did differently with that low back glute issue? You mentioned in a recent podcast, you said it lasted months and I'm going through something similar that may, uh, similar with my glute mead. Uh, I probably would have changed exercises earlier to something I could tolerate. I mean, I basically just tried to do squats and some type and deadlifts without really exploring things, um, different movements I could do to kind of build some momentum. So that was a thing. 
Uh, and I tried way too much like stretching, foam rolling, dry needle. Like I literally just started throwing money at it because it was so frustrating. I, I didn't really have a good mental model for it. So, but yeah, then I started doing front squats and RDLs to the pins um, just above my knee. And uh, literally two weeks after that, I was able to squat regularly and deadlift regularly again. So, you know, years may take longer. Watching this with baby Cottrell, does excessive nuance stunt growth? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> I feel like you need to put the headphones on the baby and then the, you know, they're going to come out and the first word's going to be nuance and then it just, then it's all over. Then it's all over. Why does Charlie of Barbell Medicine never wear a shirt and why is his bar so low on the back? Is it not, is it not really bad for the elbows? So I don't think he wears a shirt because I think it's warm where he's, where he trains and you know, he's a young guy. I mean, I took my shirt off today when I trained. So that seems like a personal uh, preference there. And then I think if the bar was too low for his elbows to tolerate that he wouldn't carry the bar that low. So I've never asked him about it. It seems like, you know, normal position for me uh, compared to other power lifters. So there you go. <sighs> Let's see. I've started coaching a YouTuber with 900,000 subs. I will try to spread the good word of barbell medicine. Oh, that's cool. Nice, man. That's a, that's a lot. I remember when Austin started coaching Alan, we were like, whoa, dude, how many, how'd you get so many subs? In your Melbourne seminar, you said for novices, the warm-up sets will contribute to the training stress, but why not just do back-off sets? Won't you get the volume in without fatigue prior to the working sets? Uh, I think that you should do back-off sets too. I wouldn't do just warm-up sets and no back-off sets. I think that if you don't know the weight that you're going to go to for the day with a reasonable like level of certainty, then your warm-up sets need to help kind of refine that. So for instance, <clears throat> you have a beginner who thinks based on a previous training session or two that they're going to work on, up on their squat to <clears throat> 225 pounds. Um, how do they get there? And, you know, what sort of decision points need to like be implemented? So if they do 95 for five, 135 for five, 155 or 160 for five, and then they jump to 185 and do that for five, and all that's fine. You know, they're like, oh, well, I could probably do 225 for five today. I see no reason why I can't based on my warmups, you know. Um, and if they're a little fatigued from that, then I think they need to get in better shape to train. And it doesn't mean they won't do any back offsets. I would do both. So it's not either or. Yeah. But I think that your warm up sets help influence, like, what the load, the correct load is, helps you determine what the correct load is for the day. Yeah. Can you talk about Tiger Woods and his surgery? How is it possible world's preeminent docs could suggest unnecessary surgery? Yeah, sure. So I think that if you are a surgeon and you're not up to date on all the pain science and, uh, you know, evidence regarding on injuries and low back pain in general, then, you know, you might make some erroneous decisions, especially if it, if it affects your bottom line. I don't think anybody's doing this maliciously. But, uh, yeah. GH5 is said to have the best in-body stabilization. No. Yeah, it's not that great. Yeah. It's not certainly not any better or, like, a reason to buy it. 
Yeah, especially you get more out of having a full frame uh, with an optically stabilized lens. So, yeah. It seems like many coaches have other people write programs for them, particular reasons you have someone else program for you. Sure, yeah. I just don't like thinking about it. It's hard to be objective on your own training. So I just don't want to do it. Yeah. Will you be releasing new hypertrophy templates in addition to power building templates? Yes, we have two new hypertrophy templates that are going to coming out. So there you go. Do you think hard sets is a better way to measure volume than volume load or total reps? No, because what like does hard sets mean? Yeah, so if you if you qualify it like RP, you know things above RP seven or a certain intensity threshold, then sure. But I don't think that there's inherent limitations to each of them. And I don't know that hard sets gives you anything better except for more squish without another sort of uh, definition that you have to throw in there. Yeah, so. <clears throat> Jordan plateaued in the press, pressing three times per week, four sets of five. Did you find more volume required or to dial back? Oh, or to dial back. I think if your press isn't going up, then you need different press programming. Do you need more volume? Maybe. If you're only just pressing four sets of five, I mean, that's not really that much, to be honest. Um, and I would look at your average intensity and training history and how the rest of your programs look is looking like, or what the rest of your programming is looking like. But yeah, four sets of five, three times a week is not so... I don't say that flippantly or, you know, whatever. It's just not that much volume. So I, I, my first instinct wouldn't be to, oh, my gosh, that's so much volume. I just, you know, if you – and then I would ask you, like, what are you trying to improve? Is your 1RM? If you're, you're trying to improve your 1RM, why are you only doing sets of five? And why are you not doing any singles? So doctor squatting, squatting with a wide stance may be the cause of hip impingement, question mark? Uh, no, not necessarily. I wouldn't think that. Does this count as studying for my physiology final? Well, if we get a good physiology question, maybe I will give you, drop some nuggets of info here. Is your competition, next competition, a USAPL meet or have you switched feds? Well, I'm still boycotting the USAPL based on their uh, ruling on transgender, uh, transgender individuals in sport. So this is a USPA meet. Uh, perhaps the USAPL will change their mind. Looking to add some variation to my list with bands and chains, do you have a preference between the two and why? I think uh, I, I, I don't like bands on squats just in general. Um, I prefer chains. I don't know why. I just That's been my just personal preference. Bench, I could go either way. I've used both. It's fine. Deadlifts, I prefer chains, but bands are okay, more tolerable. I think bands just end up being way less expensive and way easier to set up. So if I had to pick one, if that's your first like foray into something, just get some bands. Yeah. Any benefit in the 20 plus rep range for hypertrophy? Sure. Yeah. As long as you're close to failure, you can do sets of 30, 50. Yeah. I saw a post on the forum about the upcoming beginner and general strength and conditioning templates. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to, I've, edited them after they've been uh, sent to our quality control team. So I'm going to be sending them to our web developer. I think optimistically, maybe tomorrow, some of these things will be available, but realistically by the end of the week. So yeah. 
State legislature is debating whether or not to end marijuana prohibition, but discussions have come to a standstill over being unable to measure how high someone is for driving traffic issues. Does that sound reasonable to you? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think you can be impaired on a lot of different things that you won't be able to quickly detect at the side of the road, like a certain blood alcohol level, for instance, you know, um, so certain medications, um, being tired, for instance, you, no one can measure, oh, what is your blood tiredness level? But I think there are some, I, and, and I don't know this because I am not <laughs> a legal scholar and I am certainly not a traffic, you know, expert. Uh, but I would assume or I would hope that there are some validated measures of driving competency that can be done at the roadside, you know, that don't require a blood test or breath, breathalyzer or something like that. I don't know. I think it's a reasonable concern, but I don't I don't have any expertise in that field, so I'm not sure if I could tell you what to do about that. Can you explain how there's no such thing as good or bad posture? Yeah, how do you even define good or bad posture? So if you can't even define it, is it a thing? Like good posture would be associated with good outcomes, like what? Like less pain, that doesn't that's not true. Um, better, you know, respect amongst your peers, better paying job, like, I, you know, I don't know. So bad posture is what? So it's not, you can't even define it. It's not, a, it's not even a thing, right? And most people would say, oh, well, rounded shoulders, that's bad posture. Well, most of that's volitional and you can't fix it unless, uh, uh, unless you just tell people to, hey, do a different thing uh, with your, with your muscles. And if they find that to be important, then they'll do it, but you can't keep cueing people to do it over and over again. And then it becomes like second nature. That's not how this works. Yeah. Most, most of like thoracic uh, kyphosis uh, is volitional, like this shoulder rounding sort of thing is volitional. Whereas if it's structural, it's a bony thing. You can't fix it anyway. Yeah. Thoughts on the IAAF capping testosterone, female testosterone levels. Yeah. I think it's stupid. It's based on flawed data, and I, I do expect this whole thing to be overturned. So the Berman study from 2017 and 2018 is two studies, same authors. They mis not only misrepresented data, they d uh, modified, the, they manipulated the data, and then they didn't report uh, uh, subsequent data. Like there's a lot of things wrong with this, the data they're using to make this, this case. So, um, so the idea was they found that in certain events, like the 800-meter, that females with higher testosterone levels within the normal range uh, did better than females with lower testosterone levels. However, you didn't, you saw the exact opposite relationship, that is women with higher testosterone levels do worse on average than uh, uh, women with lower testosterone levels in events like javelin, the hundred, and the mile. So they didn't report that. And then when they extend this over to males, there was no correlation at all. And they, <laughs> again, doubled, they duplicated some data, they left out some data. It's really a mess. So I'm actually kind of frustrated with the CS uh, Court of Arbitration Sport for even allowing this mockery to go down. But, you know, Castor Semenya is the one who's paying the price for this, not us. Um, could you go quickly into detail about the USAPL and the trans issue, mainly the physiological differences or lack thereof between men who are now competing as women? I don't know if I can do that quickly, to be honest. Yeah, I think I only have a few minutes left. But the, basically, the USAPL is the United States branch of the IPF. The IPF is the International Powerlifting Federation. They get the rules. They uh, get their uh, recognition as a sport. 
They're recognized by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. The International Olympic Committee since 2003 has had it on the books that transgender individuals can compete. Their latest uh, update is, was, I think, 2012. And so now all sports recognized by the IOC have those rules available to them should they choose to accept them. The IPF choose to accept those rules from the IOC whereas the, and all subsequent federate uh, uh, like s- subsidiaries of the IPF has also uh, upheld their end of the bargain. Basically, they would let – um, male to female transgender athletes compete if they had declared their gender. Um, you can only do that once every four years. And then one year prior to being eligible for competition, you have to get your testosterone levels below uh, 10 nanograms per deciliter, which is two, uh, sorry, 10 millimoles per liter, which is 288 nanograms per deciliter, which is the low end of normal for men. In any event, you have to have the documentation that you did that for a year prior to eligibility to compete. So again, IPF was on board with this, but then the USAPL says, eh, we're going to ignore that. Not based on any science, not based on any evidence. Again, we've had almost 20 years of transgender individuals being able to compete in sport and not winning <laughs> uh, any Olympic medals or any open world uh, championships. There's been a couple of cases in masters division, but, you know, so this fear that oh, transgender, you know, individuals are going to take over sport like like we've been doing this for close to 20 years hasn't happened. Uh, the biggest role, uh, like gender gap in performance is lean body mass. It's about 10% more in cis men compared to trans women. Uh, it's, and that's basically the performance gap you see, 10%. But this narrows uh, a lot by when people transition. In fact, there's almost no difference, uh, after transitioning, but that's for another podcast, another discussion. We have run, came to the end of this Instagram live. It's been an hour. So, hey, if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, go check that out. Uh, we're about to send a newsletter out at the end of this week. If you haven't checked out the new uh, vlog, it's over on YouTube. Go do that. Subscribe. Leave us a comment over there. And then uh, if you're interested in any of our new templates, they're going to be out by the end of this week. So you guys should check those out over the barbellmedicine.com website. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Head over to iTunes if you get a chance. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps get our name out there, get other people listening to our podcast, and help spread the word of Barbell Medicine. Until next time, be strong. Be strong.